This is Agriculture in North Carolina. I'm Dan Miller. Each week we cover the headlines making news nationally and in the state of North Carolina that affect North Carolina farmers. This episode is a special episode dedicated to California Proposition 12 and the recent Supreme Court decision. In the episode you're about to hear, we talk about the decision of the court made on May the 11th, 2023, the justices' opinions, then specifically the impacts on pork producers in North Carolina that wish to do business in California going forward. I'm joined by my co-host, Jeff Turner, COO of Murphy Family Ventures and the CEO of the North Carolina Pork Council, Roy Lee Lindsay. Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled in the Proposition 12 case, that's a National Pork Producers Council, against the State Secretary of Agriculture for the state of California. I think a good place to start is what Justice Gorsuch said in the court's opinion. He writes, What goods belong in our stores? Usually consumer demand and local laws supply some of the answer. Recently, California adopted such a law banning in-state sale of certain pork products derived from breeding pigs confined in stalls small enough that they can't lie down, stand up, or turn around. In response, two groups of -of out-of-state pork producers filed a lawsuit, arguing the law unconstitutionally interferes with their preferred way of doing business in violation of this court's dormant Commerce Clause precedents. Both the District Court and the Court of Appeals dismissed the producer's complaint for failing to state a claim. We affirm... Companies that choose to sell products in various states must normally comply with laws of those states. Assuredly, under this court's dormant Commerce Clause decisions, no state may use its laws to discriminate purposefully against out-of-state economic interests. But the pork producers do not suggest that California's law offends this principle. Instead, they invite the court to fashion two new and more aggressive constitutional restrictions on the ability of states to regulate goods sold within their borders. We decline that invitation. While the Constitution addresses many weighty issues, the type of pork chops California merchants sell is not on the list. Most assuredly, I want to hear from my co-host, but first, Roy Lee, your reaction? I think obviously we're disappointed in the court's ruling. It is a very complex ruling, five different opinions, 58 pages, and we're still trying to sort it out. What, What exactly does it say and what exactly does it mean? At the end of the day, it means that as far as we're concerned, that Proposition 12 in California will stand. California Food and Agriculture will go ahead and promulgate the rules and issue the rules that folks that want to sell whole cut of pork meat into California will have to comply with if they wish to remain active in the California market. Roy Lee, that was much more diplomatic than I'll ever be about it. It is a bad ruling. It's the tail wagging the dog. As far as Jeff Turner was concerned, there would be no pork in the great state of California. They consume 15% of the pork we produce in the country. Somebody's going to sell them pork. Hog farmers, farmers in general have always said, tell us what you want and we'll provide it as long as you're willing to pay for it. And I think as long as they're willing to pay for it, somebody will figure out how to give them product that complies with what the law in California is. And right now, there is very limited supply of product that complies with Prop 12. Typically, when you when you look at supply and demand, if you've got a reduced supply and an increase in demand, price goes up. In reading the decision, Justice Gorsuch said very similar to that. It's a supply and demand situation, asking the justices to rule on fairness of morality versus fairness of imposition for that morality is asking them to determine the length of a line versus the weight of a stone. His point, which leaves an avenue, and that's what I want to talk about next, this is not over, but it leaves an avenue 
for the industry to get Congress to regulate, although Congress has been reluctant to do so. Uh, that is an opportunity, and if you re- he's not the only member of the, the panel that mentioned that, hey, there are legislative remedies available. Congress doesn't do anything quickly, as you can tell as you watch the, the news coverage every day. I don't see that happening, at least not in the immediate future. I don't think anybody knows for certain what this means for the marketplace in California or anywhere else until you actually see how they're going to implement it, what does that do? How do the citizens in California react if there's if there's limited product on the shelves? What does all of that mean? And I think until we see that, it's really hard to, to speculate about what will come next. I don't think it's often found that you'll see a justice who leaves the Yellow Brick Road for the petitioner, which in this case Justice Kavanaugh does in his dissenting opinion. He gives three specific paths toward what he believes although not saying that he endorses them, as possibilities to be able to remedy this situation. Pretty extraordinary. You essentially had two justices that concurred. I mean, you had Gorsuch that wrote the opinion and Justice Thomas that concurred with all of his opinion. You had Sotomayor and Kagan that agreed with the end result, but disagreed with part of Gorsuch's conclusions. And then you had Barrett that also agreed with the end result, but disagreed with how they got there. And then you had Kavanaugh that disagreed further, and you had Justice Roberts that disagreed further. I mean, so it was a very complex ruling, and the justices had to struggle to figure out where to go. We thought that the Ninth Circuit Court, when they reviewed it, that there was language in the opinion that said, hey, Supreme Court, help us solve this problem. That didn't happen. You're right. Kavanaugh does identify what he says are are ways to come back and take another stab at this. It should be noted that this did not fall on any partisan lines at all. Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett are all Republican appointees. Sotomayor and Kagan are both Democrat appointees. Now, in the dissenting opinion, Roberts, Alito, and Kavanaugh Republican appointees. Jackson, the most recent court appointee, Democrat. One of the divides here was... Is this the appropriate role for judges to decide, or should it be decided by uh, our elected officials, our politicians? And five of the the nine, you know, kind of got to the place that said, yeah, no, we're not going to get there. That was Gorsuch and Thomas and Barrett were very much in the, this is not our role to decide. It's someone else's role to decide. That's why I said it's a very complicated decision. It will take us time to really study and understand all the implications of the the legal implications of it, not the the practical implications about how you sell product or or what you do, but the legal side of what does all this mean and, and then what options are there for steps in the future. It's going to be interesting, again, implementation, how just the very basics of implementation of proposition, I find it really hard uh, how, how do you police it? How do you send someone from the California Department of Agriculture to North Carolina to inspect a farm to make sure that it's in compliant with a rule that's only one of 50 states? From my standpoint, again, as a farmer, I really believe when supply dries up, there'll be an uprising in California. And they'll say, what in the world do we do? And they'll go to the General Assembly and get it fixed. That's my personal opinion. I, I do believe that people voted for something that they had no idea 
what would come from the proposition itself. And animal rights folks, uh, this is a huge win for them. And everybody needs to understand, at the end of the day, those folks are not really interested in the welfare of an animal. What they have an interest in is for you to not consume meat any time of any kind. That is the ultimate goal. A lot of the pundits say, look, this happened in California because the concept of this sells well to the public, but when the public has a voter referendum that is voted on and then made into law, even good intentions go awry. Yeah, California is not the only state that does ballot questions this way. So fortunately, I think North Carolina is not that way. So if you want something on the state ballot, I think it's got to go through the General Assembly to get there. And I think that's probably a good way to to limit when you just look at the sheer number of things that California puts on the ballot every year for voting. And and they've even gone so far in California as if something is adopted by ballot like this, then it takes 80 percent majorities in both the House and the Senate in California to overturn it. So the likelihood of the legislature in California making changes to it, I think, is very small. Justice Kavanaugh states, if a state has aggressively, uh, such as California has, that California knows best, what if they decide that they're going to prohibit the sale of fruit picked by non-citizens who are unlawfully in the country? Or what if the state prohibits the sale of goods produced by workers paid less than $20 an hour? Or if they suggest that retail sale of goods from producers that don't, pay for their employees' birth control, abortions, or health care, or that do, again, situation where cross-state policies are a problem? Well, the way I read this decision, they say that's not the court's role to sort out. Right. It's Congress's role to sort out. So, you know, maybe if that happens, then Congress gets more interested in, in fixing it. Until the issue gets bigger than just pork on the plate, I don't know that Congress is going to be real excited about uh, tackling it. If I get this right, it's the ninth court ruling that stands because the justices failed to rule on it. Is that correct? The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And essentially, all the Ninth Circuit ruled was the California District Court, the federal district court in California, dismissed NPPC's challenge, citing the Dormant Commerce Clause. And then the Ninth Circuit upheld that dismissal. And so this was a challenge to that decision. Had the court ruled in our favor, had it been 5-4 the other way, all that would have happened was we'd have gone back to the Ninth Circuit Court in California and had another hearing. It wouldn't have done away with Proposition 12. We would have had to go back and prove our case as to why this violated the Dormant Commerce Clause and apply whatever guidance the court gave us and directed whatever guidance the Supreme Court gave to the Ninth Circuit That would all have to be applied as we went forward. This was not a guarantee that Prop 12 would be overturned. It would have been a guarantee that we got to go have our day in court because we didn't actually get that either in federal court in California or at the Ninth Circuit. We didn't get to have, you know, put on the case. Here's here's what we've got. All we got to do was was submit it the first time and, and the district court dismissed it. And then the Ninth Circuit upheld that dismissal. I was hopeful that we would at least get the opportunity to go back and put our case on about all the impacts, et cetera, and that didn't happen. There was a moratorium for enforcing Prop 12 that now is going to uh, sunset, and when does this really take effect? July 1. Right now, the, the timeline is July 1. 
there is a hold on the case in California, an injunction holding it until July 1. They've got to work that through the regulatory agency and and the court will have to lift that injunction and so forth. But unless something else changes, we would expect Proposition 12 and its requirements to be into effect July 1. And Jeff, if it goes into effect July 1, how soon before that pork really hits the market? You breed an animal, three months, three weeks, three days, three minutes, three seconds, she's going to deliver pigs. And then you can add 21 weeks to that. So just to add on, I, I realize that everybody, this 15% of the market share is one thing, but whenever you're losing a half a million people a year that's moving to other states, the market share will go down because there, there's not going to be enough people left to consume the pork. So I, I think there's a there's a demographic shift that's taking place that might impact that 15% number. Jeff, if you were to decide to uh, make the changes required under California Prop 12? would be a substantial cost. In fact, in the footprint in North Carolina, you would, you would either have to reduce the inventory on most farms in order to change the pinning and all the other things that are being required. And so you would have fewer animals on the farm. You lose efficiency there plus the construction. We have a moratorium in North Carolina, and if you can't build back on the footprint, or in compliance, it's a it's a dicey situation. I don't know how, and Roy Lee may have, have heard some numbers by now, but I'm not so sure that an existing farm with its present inventory in North Carolina could be built. I, I don't think that's possible. Yeah, Jeff, I, I don't know how. That, to, I certainly won't argue with your assessment in that regard, but the numbers that you hear are $2,500 to $3,500 a sow to convert from stalls to group housing at 24 feet. And and I think it's important to note, you know, from a North Carolina perspective, is many of the farms in North Carolina have already moved to group housing. We use breeding stalls to to house animals and confirm until we confirm they're pregnant and that their pregnancies have settled. And then we move them into group housing and or, or group pens, if you will. Even in those cases, uh, we're in the 20, roughly 20 square feet per animal in terms of space allowance. And if you look in those group pens, what you'll find typically is the sows all lay down on top of one another and crowd themselves together and half the pen's empty because they're all laying in one end. But to comply with Prop 12, they need 24 square feet per animal. So even those facilities in North Carolina that have already converted to group housing, that group housing doesn't meet Prop 12 standards. From my perspective, one of the big concerns about this going forward is California adopted a measure in... 2008 that banned the use of gestation stalls in California. And when they came back and said, we're going with this Prop 12 in 2018, they didn't just say, we want everybody to not use gestation stalls. They went ahead and added this arbitrary number about the size that you have to have. What keeps the next state from going 26 feet? Or I saw legislation introduced in another state this year that would have required 36 feet. That legislation failed, but but just the premise of it is you're looking at just kind of this arbitrary number that people have plucked out of the air to say this is where we need to get to. Let um, me see if I extrapolated correctly. Your point, Jeff, is there's a moratorium on the number of hog operations in North Carolina, and if we convert, we lose overall size of the number of sows that we have in North Carolina, which means we're just going to downsize if we complied with the amount of product we put out. Let's say you've got a, a farm 
that exists today is you can add to that farm. You can do a lot of things if it stays in the same footprint and it still meets the, the setback criteria that was developed in 1996. So first off, if you're going to go from stall gestation to pen gestation, uh, I think 19.2 feet is the number that everybody's been shooting at for the longest time. You can, in many cases, figure out how to do that inside of the existing structure in a lot of cases. But if you're going to go to 24 square feet per animal, then you have to add roof line or you have to lower the number of animals on the farm. Neither one are a good choice. And when we talk about $2,500 to $3,000 per sow, the average farm, again, we haven't built any new farms because there's a moratorium. But the average sow farm, when it was built, at least the, the Murphy-style operations that I'm more familiar with, uh, we built those, the entire farm, for $650 a sow. You're talking about going in today's world and converting just part. Of, you still got an old farm. If you convert and go to the pen gestation, you're going to spend four times more just to work on a couple of buildings and get them in compliance than it costs to build the entire farm. It, it doesn't work. The, the math doesn't work. Very fortunate to be able to talk to two people who have spent a lifetime in the pork industry. Jeff Turner, Murphy Family Ventures, Roy Lee Lindsay, the CEO of the North Carolina Pork Council. We'll leave it there, gentlemen, and I thank you both. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take care, Roy Lee. It's good to talk to you, man. This is Agriculture in North Carolina. Find us online at agandnc.com or the podcast available where you find podcasts for your mobile device. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing. I'm Dan Miller. This has been an Interbanks Media Production, copyright 2023.